0: This is the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University. This podcast highlights the dimensions of leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Our hosts Dr. Joanna Bauer, and Dr. Lynn Pretty get into the specifics with each guest, and we ask questions that need to be answered about ethical leadership and leading in today's society. Now, let's hear from our hosts.
1: Welcome back to the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University. As you already know, at CLU, we explore new different and urgently needed forms of leadership. We're your hosts. Today, we have a distinctive leader with 40 plus years of experience in higher education. You probably know him if you've been at a college or university or an accreditation firm. He's learned a lot over those years about how we should lead today and in the future. Bill Peppagello has been faculty at multiple nonprofit institutions, played various administrative roles, been a provost and president, but where you know him folks, is as president, and in fact, the sixth president of University of Phoenix. The rest of his bio is online, you've heard it. And so we're jumping right in. Hello, Bill, how are you today?
2: I'm good, how are you, Lynn?
1: Pretty good, pretty good. Um, so we wanna get right into the leadership and the business model of higher ed. And so you mentioned in a couple of your blogs, and I know you well enough to know, you think the business model has to change, it's broken. So. I have a two part question. Let's start with that model. What's needed in the business model?
2: Well, um, I'll I'll plagiarize a little bit from Gordon Gee, um, who said, we don't need to get out of the box in higher education, as far as the business model goes, we need to blow the box up. Um, and, And I guess my perspective on it is not that it, the business model is broken necessarily, I think it's outdated. Um, the, the three-legged stool where you've got state funding, federal funding, and then private funding from various kinds of, uh, of sources, including tuition, simply isn't sustainable at this point, um, in, at least in, uh, in America. You know, the federal funds uh, have been Slowly drying up. State funds have been rapidly um, drying up.
1: Yeah, non existed in fact. Yeah.
2: yeah, pretty much. And increasingly, the, the burden has fallen on on the student, um, and you know that that's simply not viable in the long run. You know, my uh, perspective has been that there are there are lots of other business models out there that are very successful. Um, and I, I will use the, uh, the, the term for-profit um, because as we know, the current business model in higher education, no matter where it is, is in fact a, a for-profit model. Um, and by that, I mean any institution that isn't uh, taking in more money than it's expending is in trouble. And we are, we're seeing that increasingly in higher education as more and more, especially smaller and unfortunately liberal arts institutions are going out of business or they're being acquired or they're, they're merging. All of that is, is a result of um, a, a, an essential business model that, uh, that is sort of limping along if it's not outright failing. It's why we see things like uh, Purdue and Kaplan and, uh, and, and other sorts of partnerships uh, coming along right now.
1: So, it, in the midst of all this, we also have COVID and the social unrest. Do you think either will have a long-term impact on the model?
2: Yes, to both. Um, I'll, I'll start with the, with the unrest. The, un, the unrest right now is part of a, of a larger issue I think for for higher education, and that is for basically all of its history, higher education has never been mired in things like um, s- sexual harassment or bigotry or uh, really uh, so some of the. the the uglier politics that we've seen in the last decade or so higher education's job was to rise above that study it report on it and inform uh, inform the rest of us about what's going on well in the last especially in the last decade and one of the best examples of this is the the me too movement suddenly higher education was open to a whole host of ills that previously it only studied and was not part of. And I think higher education continues to struggle with that. You see the number of of leaders in higher education who are um, sometimes losing their positions, resigning their positions, or certainly are under fire for any number of of issues, from uh, from financial uh, you know financial failure to um, personal failures of, of various kinds, that we wouldn't need to go into, and higher education is really struggling with those things because it's it's hard to to really study it um, sort of objectively if you're also in the middle of it uh, and suffering from it. So I think that that's going to continue as higher education actually becomes part of culture as opposed to um, an,
1: you know an objective observer on the outside. So wait I want to before you go to COVID, that is such an interesting point because it it really does signal a shift that higher ed has, ha- has got to become part of the real world and be a player in the real world. I'm going to get to your leadership exactly. soon. Um, as opposed to being a place where students go before they get into the real world. Just just such a, I just really wanted to push on that because I think that's a really insightful point. So now talk to us about COVID. Okay. And, and and the advent of everybody online.
2: Sure. I mean, the thing that COVID I think is going to, and I think this will ultimately be beneficial for, for higher education. COVID is going to be one of the, the major, one of the major uh, impetuses for pushing higher education into the real world. Um, As we, well, let me get to that point, then I'll come back to to what I think it might look like. I mean, higher education, as you know, Lynn, and and, and probably all of you on, uh, on uh, on the podcast know, has been somewhat resistant to online or virtual or digital education, however you want to term it. Um, and I'm, I'm a little sensitive here because I was at the University of Phoenix uh, in 1995, which is when the, the, uh, the World Wide Web really exploded. And the University of Phoenix, which had been doing a, a clunky version of online for uh, probably eight or nine years, um, suddenly burst on the scene. And one of the reasons that we burst on the scene was that we already knew the basics of, of online education and because we had been doing it. Um, so we just had to translate what we already knew into a into a web base. And then uh, driven by our founder, John Sperling, who's one of the most interesting people mm-hmm. uh, I ever yes. met, yeah. we, we took it to the next step, which was to develop a virtual library. And then we developed virtual classroom materials. And we worked with publishers to, uh, to develop virtual textbooks. And for all of these things, um, and Lynn, I, I think in particular uh, from your background in accreditation, you will remember the skepticism.
1: Oh yes, it was harsh.
2: Yeah, it was very harsh. Um, I can remember times when I walked into meetings at uh, certain accreditation agencies and people actually got up and left when I came in the room uh, because of what I represented. And at this point now, some decades later, we see that everybody is doing at least some online. There are many virtual libraries. There are a variety of um, of publishers who are mostly online. I, I think of Pearson, for instance, is a is a good example of that. Um, and people are, are are saying, well, you know, we we need to we need to get comfortable with this digital experience. And my reaction to that, and here's where we get back to COVID, is that people are are, are somehow of the notion that. COVID is forcing people to live in a, in a different kind of, 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 of world, this digital online world. And in fact, one of the things that I've said for years is that where higher education misses the boat is that it's not integrated into people's lives. And the example I always use, um, at least my favorite example, is online banking. Um, you know, I. I know where my local bank is, where the brick and mortar bank is. And I know that if I go there, it's populated by um, very pleasant, well-groomed young people um, who will try to help me if I come in there. And despite the pleasantness of that environment, I don't wanna go there. And I don't wanna talk to those young people. I want to do my business as, as efficiently as possible and if i can do that online then i don't need to see them now if i do need to see them i want them to be there but that's that's another another matter but you know the same is true uh, increasingly now for places like amazon where there's there's no really no need to go to a to a store to to buy clothes for instance unless you want to try them on and frankly At my age. I don't want to try on clothes in front of young people Um, so I I tend not to do that. Good point. Um, But once I know what I like, whether it's shoes or shirts, um, I can order it and someone will bring it to my door. Now somehow higher education has taken the the stance and, and at least until fairly recently that they don't work that way. You must come, it must be done in person, um, that, that knowledge resides in the faculty and the library. Um, and that is where knowledge is disseminated from. Well, we all know that's not true in general. Um, knowledge is everywhere. And if, if students are, uh, are forced into artificial situations to access knowledge, they'll find other ways to do it. Other ways like Wikipedia and Google, which sometimes may not be as as reliable as uh, as traditional ways, but are certainly more accessible. And I think that what we have seen slowly happening is that as as students increasingly uh, demanded that, Uh, That knowledge, that services at higher education become more accessible. Institutions have moved in the direction of online classrooms, of online resources and services such as admissions or financial aid. COVID has accelerated that process, Um, and it's accelerated it sometimes in painful ways. Excuse me, as you. uh, As you will have noticed, a number of institutions have uh, tried to open their uh, physical campuses this fall with varying degrees of of success. Some of them not very successful at all, having to close down after just a a very short time being open. Um, And I have been, uh, although I have been retired now for several years, I've been uh, contacted by institutions and by learning platform uh, companies to, to help them figure out how to navigate quickly through, uh, through the new world that, that we have to live in. The, the, the upside of this is that if higher education is successful in making the transition from what we call traditional higher education to, to the new next, whatever that is, um, I think you'll find that higher education will be much more integrated into people's daily life. And I think that's going to make it uh, a much more valuable asset and resource for people in general.
1: You know, we want to continue this theme. And I had a, 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 we're going to come back to your focus on leadership, because I know Joanna is pinging me because she wants to ask you the logical follow-up question to this. So Joanna, jump in here.
3: Yeah, exactly. The the follow-up question to that, though, of course, uh, is directly aligned with what Claremont Lincoln University is we really focus on the application of the mm-hmm. information and the integration is what you've been talking about. And so if we're talking about working adults, the need for prior learning uh, assessment, that sort of thing, direct alignment of work, and then if we move into reskilling and upskilling, The fourth industrial revolution of course comes into that. And you brought up questions of accessibility as well. So in that experience, is higher ed really serving the needs of students now and how will they be able to do that into the future?
2: Okay. Well, uh, the short answer uh, is no, it's not doing that now. The more gentle answer is it's higher education is increasingly realizing that it's not meeting all the needs of today's students. The the issue becomes that this is not something that we can study and opine and theorize about. It needs to to be done. Um, And what you described as an institution, I think is where higher education ultimately um, will be going. higher education was always looked at um, as what's called a a public good, which somehow means it it was set apart from the rest of society. And the reason it was looked at that way is that higher education in America was originally designed for a very elite class of, of students who were already going to be successful in life and they were the only ones who had access. Um, Over the years with things like the GI Bill um, and and eventually online education, education became democratized. It became um, accessible to the general public and that led to an evolution where um, higher education, in particular, was looked not looked at not just as a public good, but as a public commodity. And there will be people listening to this who are, at this point, going to turn mm. off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but they have to listen. They have to listen because you're making a really critical point. And, I, and I'm going to jump with the question after this. So keep going here.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean. I mean, that, the whole deal with, with University of Phoenix was application and accessibility. Right. You know, university. The working
1: adult, the working adult, even beyond the community college, right?
2: Right. Well, but the working adult is now just the the post-secondary person. Um, You know, students now, we were talking about uh, universities being a place where students went before they, went to the real world. These students are now enmeshed in the real world in their teens. I mean, in order to, to, to survive in today's society for better or worse, you find that high school students are, are working sometimes more than one job, that uh, community colleges are full, not just of, of um, adult learners, but of, of students who are, who are working as well as um, is going to community college. Um, I have a, a granddaughter who's in that, um, in that mode right now. And the reason that they're going to community colleges um, in so far as they are, although I know those enrollments are down uh, also, right, right. is that they're looking for that job alignment. I mean, that's, that was a really good phrase that you tossed out there. Uh, and, and that's where people are looking at education as valuable, but not just education qua education. It's education in order to better myself, in order to have a, you know, a, a better life uh, and, and, and advance and, and to be of service to my community. And I think those are things that uh, that higher education is, is, is struggling with. Um, Well, and
3: for me, it also, I'm going to jump in here, also not, you have to go to a higher ed institution before you, for me, it's about jumping in wherever you are. If I want to go back and upskill or reskill at whatever age, I should be able to do that. It's not a specific trajectory that has to happen in a specific order.
2: You're exactly correct. Um, and one of the things that, that people are asking me about um, is well, how do we put together um, either a, a piece of our university or, or a separate entity that does exactly what you just described? That it's there for people with what we used to call stackable credentials.
3: Exactly. Right. Uh,
2: yep, right. Basically, people come to us for whatever they need whenever they need it. Right. And if they do need um, a higher kind of credential at some point, we, we sort of cobble that together. But, you know, I'm finding that employers are, are basically less and less concerned with, with degrees and more and more concerned with just job skills.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm hearing you say, just to point out, and because Joanna's next question is right on topic of this as well, but I'm hearing you say, so this is, <laughs> I, I heard you say a bolt-on, the, you know, this, these colleges are asking for a bolt-on, but it's actually, it should be the core to be built on as opposed to just, uh, this little extra piece. It's where even the traditional, even the 16-year-olds are going, that, that there's, that the whole idea of the classic traditional education is being upended even for those we've kind of preserved to go to, away to college in the dorms and in the theory and in to kind of the study outside the real world. I'm hearing you say it's it, it, literally, it's, it's a total shift of where the priority is for all of higher ed.
2: Yeah, uh, yes. I'm, what I'm saying is we're, we're moving rapidly in that direction. Yep. Um, some places are moving much more rapidly. Um, other, you know, other places are, are going to be more monolithic. Some of our, the, the larger education education institutions, both public and private, won't need to do it as quickly. But what, what you're really talking about here is a redefinition of what we used to call a comprehensive university or a comprehensive exactly. education. And I, I think you're right that uh, the core of it is going to look much different. I mean, one of the things that um, that Lynn knows that others of you may not, is that my first assignment at University of Phoenix was to build a general education program.
1: <laughs> yeah, really? absolutely.
2: It was degree completion when I came there and my job was to put on the, the first two years, just like every other comprehensive university. And I, I think we're gonna see a, a shift away from, from that kind of, of thinking and structure.
1: Oh, I- General education is a whole nother podcast, Bill. We could really yeah. fly on that one because I have all different ideas about social change and sustainability as general ed. But either way, Joanna, go, go with your corporate question.
3: Yeah. So if we're talking about a complete reimagining of the educational structure in higher ed and not having this trajectory, where do you see the corporate universities? So credentials from Amazon or eBay or Logitech or, you know, those sort of partnerships or from a corporation? Do you see them displacing, complementing, or maybe outpacing traditional higher ed? But, and then a secondary question to that is where will the curricula be developed then? Uh, who's going to be in charge of that? What do you think?
2: A really good question. Um, I think in general. And a corporate education was was very uh, a very hot thing in, mm-hmm. in the 80s and early 90s we had in Phoenix we had Motorola University for right yep. yeah it was it was one of the biggest and, and, and best known um, there the the curriculum was developed um, it depended on what the what the skill set was you were looking at um, the hard skills were developed by by um, by Motorola itself, um, employees who uh, who, in in some measure, University of Phoenix helped train to develop the curriculum, um, and in the softer skills, it, those were developed by community colleges and, and by University of Phoenix. But to get to the to the heart of your question, which is what's the place of, um, of that kind of education going to be? It's going to be interesting to see. Um, it's at least going to compete with community colleges and uh, colleges and universities because that kind of education can be done much more quickly inside the um, inside the corporate structure um, than it can having to go through curriculum committees, mm-hmm. you know, uh, college committees. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but at this point. They, they become more more barriers. Now, the content and, and, and the development at one point would have been an issue because there was the academic world and the corporate world and never the twain shall meet. But now, uh, the corporate world is smart enough to understand Amazon is, is a place that does. Um, Pearson is is, is a really good example of this in that if you have a a, a structure that has content, you can find course developers and faculty who are more than willing to do the work to put together a curriculum for you. Um, And part of this is sort of a, a fallout from what's going on in higher education where you find that that faculty are are being displaced for for many different reasons, Uh, many of them good faculty, but also there are a lot of faculty who who get it. They understand that that education is a commodity but they also understand what the value of it is to the student and they're willing to participate in what could become a a new model in, in some ways.
1: Uh, Like a freelance model?
0: Did you hear that Claremont Lincoln University has just released a brand new graduate degree program, a master in public administration. Our MPA program is absolutely incredible. Students will learn ethical leadership and socially conscious skills necessary to create sustainable social change in their workplaces and communities. Check out claremontlincoln.edu for more information.
1: Um, are faculty strongholds? Or I mean, I, I, I agree with you. There's a whole new role for faculty, mm-hmm. extraordinary, innovative faculty to play yeah. here.
2: Now, that's what, you just brought up a really good point that I hadn't thought about. Um, there might be some enterprising faculty uh-huh. who put together
1: a, mm-hmm. you
2: know, mm-hmm. we the are best the best of
1: the best. Yeah. yeah.
2: What, what do you need? Where do you need it? Yeah. And who do you want us to work with? Uh, boy, that's a really cool idea.
3: Yeah, because they're in there. They're in the trenches. <laughs> so they're the ones that are going to know what's happening right now the most anyway.
2: Right. I mean, what's happening now is uh, corporations are they'll contact a um, whether it's a community college or someplace like University of Phoenix, where there are uh, a good number of part time faculty and reach out to those part-time faculty and say, hey, how would you like uh, to put even more food on the table?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, you know, it would put teaching and learning straight at the center. Yeah. Interesting, because they're the folks who really do know it, and then things could wrap around it again. Now, that actually could help traditional higher ed for the ongoing research needs, the uh, liberal arts and the study need. I mean, the There is a place, there's this love, I mean, it's extraordinary, the diversity in the higher ed landscape. And this actually could free up the elephant to get out of the middle of the room. So you still could have your research use with their big agendas for change, Mm -hmm. even though they're integrated, but even your liberal arts, where folks actually do study and really try to understand the big philosophical movements of culture and society. I mean, it, I mean, there are possibilities there. You think or not? Am I just trying to hang on to the past? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to hang on to my general ed. No.
2: Well, remember, my degrees are in Latin and Greek and linguistics. Yeah, yeah, oh.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, mine's linguistics and, and, and English, of course.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no. What you're trying to do is is preserve the past and and make it relevant. Right. Somewhere mm-hmm. along the way, that's and we. Like you said, general education is another podcast. But what we let slip away was the fact that the, the key to a good education is the basic general education. And, and we sort of left the value of that um, or we gave it lip service. Right. For instance, if you ask employers, you know, what skills do you want in, in the people that you hire? they say, or They will say, good communication skills and critical thinking. Right. No, they do Absolutely. They're lying through their teeth. <laughs> they
1: want their technical skills. That, exactly.
2: Now it's a bonus. The people who come in and exhibit critical thinking and communication skills are going to be the ones who advance um, in many ways. You know, they, they have a, a different path than people who come only with technical skills and then develop the technical skills. So I think there's a, there's a couple of different pathways there, uh, depending on how general education is integrated.
1: And, and you said the key word there, the integration, it was always kept separate, which there's a whole host of reasons there that come with unions and job protection, all sorts of other things. Yep. And um, versus, but, but that's what we're beginning to see. Uh, Claremont Lincoln really focuses on integrating real leadership by doing it. And so I I want to shift now again back to the blog you've had for a couple of years on leadership because you've emphasized something we're trying to emphasize. And that is that you say leaders are revealed versus made and that there's a distinctiveness about you learn to lead by doing. You basically take everything related to leadership. I believe you said you make it your own versus adopt a theory and study it. And and you literally just get out there, apply it, learn, fall, get back up again. Talk a little bit about kind of your thinking about leadership.
2: Well, I got nothing left to say. You just said it all.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Then let me ask the next question. What attri- so? What are the attributes and skills leaders really need now, given everything we've talked about this new playing field?
2: Yeah, and it, and you know I was being a bit facetious, but so go
1: on, jump in, say what you want, Bill. <laughs>
2: I think that you know, my basic approach to leadership, and let me start by saying, I've never taken a course in leadership until I retired. I'd never read a book on leadership. Wow. Um, I'd seen some lectures, um, but I was too busy doing it and, and learning <laughs> what it was. I mean, I, I was thrown into the fray on, um, on many occasions. And um, Lynn, now you have a, a perspective on my career, which is at University of Phoenix, there were no rules. There was no theory for what we were doing. Nope. We, every day we would onto the field of play. We didn't really even know what the rules were, but we figured them out as we went along. Um, and I'm, If anybody, if you ever look at, at, uh, at my blog, um, there is actually a book on Amazon called "Leadership on the Field of Play" um, that nobody's ever read, but it's but it's there. I, I quote Yogi Berra a lot, mm-hmm. and what Yogi said was, "In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is." And you, that's one of those yogiisms you have to th- sit and think about for a while. But what he's saying is. <clears throat> That leadership is is contextual, um, which I agree with. Um, a lot of it goes to uh, to paying attention, um, to, to to having a sense of of, of self awareness. Um, and what I what I mean when I say that I don't think you can you can make someone a leader. Um, I mean i I know lots of of folks, uh, myself not included, who can quote you all sorts of leadership theory and you know the, the 10 steps to being a good leader. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I think those things can be helpful to people. But if you don't have that je ne sais quoi um, to lead people, the theory just doesn't help very much. Um, so that's what I mean when I say leaders are are exposed. They're the people who come onto the field of play and say, "Huh, well, let's try this. Let's take this risk. Um, let's let's take on the hardest job that there is here and see if we can be successful at it." And those are the are the kinds of folks who, um, who to my mind, have what I call the leadership gene, and 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 it develops through experience. And to the extent that I was a a leader, that's how it came about for me is that, you know, I, I would, you know, for instance, take coming to the university of Phoenix and building the, the first two years of a, of a general education program for what university of Phoenix was in those days was, was a great risk. I mean, I left a, uh, an interesting position. Actually, it was since some of you are in California. I was with National University in California. Mm-hmm. And I was a regional administrator. And I, I left that to uh, to go to University of Phoenix because I, I believed in what they were doing. It was a an enormous risk. Um, but it it forced me to either develop my leadership ability um or to to join the ranks of the unemployed um, probably <laughs> in, in those days. So, you know, that's sort of my take on it, which is, I know it, it is anathema to, to, to lots of folks out there who, who who teach leadership. But I think you can you can certainly teach lots of, of useful principles um and, and theory, but um it, it's there's no there's no recipe. You you can't take the theory and 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 go out and and apply it, and suddenly you're a leader. It's not like putting together an IKEA bookcase. Um, oh, maybe that's a bad analogy because that's hard to do. Um, <laughs> so you know, go ahead.
1: Now, this is going to be interesting. If folks listen to this podcast, along with the uh, Edgar and Peter Shine podcast, it really raises some really core questions about some fundamental abilities of leaders, as opposed to the, uh, or, or within which you then apply things you may pick up from books and theory. But it really, it, it speaks to these um, developed experience and behaviors that, that come about. Joanna, where you wanna go next?
3: Yes, and that leads me to a question, uh, talking about your book, Leadership on the Field of Play. And so if we're really focusing on experience and how that looks, in your, your book, you talk about how your team faced many successes and, and some failures, yep. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I'm curious, what do you consider your most important failure and why do you think that's your most important failure?
2: Wow, but first of all, I, I, would, I, I would never say I
1: failed. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't expect that from you, Bill.
3: Yeah, that's right. Because that's, you turned it into something. But so was, that's why it's most important because you turned it into something.
2: Exactly. I mean, I, um, I went off on somebody on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Someone was giving leadership ex, uh, advice and they said, expect to fail. It will make you better. And I said, if you expect to fail, you will fail. I never expected to fail so that when I had a setback or I hit a bump in the road, it wasn't a failure. It was a learning experience. Right. And from that learning experience, I said, oh, I guess I won't step on that mind the next time <laughs> I walk by it. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes I I, I took something uh, what I look back at as in, incredible risks. I was in the middle of a of a state um, a state approval um, many years ago, actually in the state of Michigan. Um, hmm, okay. And I was having a, a really bad experience because the state of Michigan didn't they were there to look at our curriculum. But the, what they didn't like was that University of Phoenix had, had an accelerated um, model and we had part-time faculty. And so the, the leader of the team said, oh, your curriculum's okay, but we're going to rec- recommend that you not be approved because we don't like uh, your faculty model and um, your, uh, your accelerated format. And I said, well, but that's not why you're here. And the the team chair said, I know, but that's what we're going (laughs) to do. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I thought, all right, what, what, you know, what could I do? So I went back to my room and I thought for a short period of time, and then I called the the team leader and said, this visit is over. Take your team, go home, go back to to your state agency, and I'll see you around. And then I... Then I called my boss at University of Phoenix and said, guess what I just did? And to her, to her credit, all she said was, you better know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> of course, I had no idea. Um, but what that enabled me to do, and this is where the critical thinking came in, because I cut short the, the visit, they couldn't issue, a, a verdict. Right, exactly. So, so I, I had that. And it also gave me the opportunity to call the state approval agency the next day, tell them what I did and why I did it. So that I had I had my basis covered. And in fact, the, the state agency uh, got back to me within about two days and said, you know, we're gonna do another visit. Um, and we're going to have a new team, and we, we hope things will go better for you. Um, and they did. Another team came. They were right on task. They were focused. We got the approval, and the team chair from the state agency who had been there, uh, the first time, unfortunately, was looking for employment elsewhere at that point. Um, my perspective on that was better her than me. Um, but that's the kind of, you know, that was a case where liberal arts helped, but it was, th- th- you know, whatever kind of leadership there was there, um, you know, which involved risk-taking, uh, worked out, at least in that case.
1: Well, it's also a, just a, it's a perfect reflection of how underlying values and assumptions about what matters... And, and what doesn't, you know, it, it, it just, it confronts people and it takes a while. And University of Phoenix did that over and over and over again. They actually confronted people with really tough questions that challenged assumptions. And, and um, very interesting story, really interesting story. That's exa- That good choice.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's, it, and you make a good point. There's a difference between taking a stand and making an attack. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes the people who are unsuccessful in situations like I just described are the ones who, who attack. They want to fight. And I thought, well, that's, that's a no win. So what is a win?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So anything else on your current soapbox today, Bill, um, that we haven't touched on?
2: I don't think so. I, I managed to, to get it in there one way or another or you <laughs> asked the right question.
1: <laughs> well, we really wanted to kind of push and, and, and probe because um, back to one of your key points, the whole culture, there's, there's incredible numbers of values and assumptions around all of higher ed as something that operates outside the world versus inside the world. I think that we really wanted to clarify that. So Joanna always has this one final question That matters most Joanna.
3: (laughs) Yes. Going back to what matters. And I love your story about your, um, about your success turned out of your, what could have been a failure, but, and then the risk associated with that. That's a great story and a great lesson. So if we're talking about looking back through your time, what or who inspires you?
2: Hmm. Are you looking for one answer or a set?
3: A set, whatever you want to give us. <laughs> well, I think,
2: you know, early in my career, I and mean, I spent the first 15 or 16 years of my life as a, as a research professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I studied uh, the, uh, the structure of certain kinds of subordinate clauses in Western Indo-European languages. You want to hear more about that
1: hey i we can have another co- podcast on that one <laughs> yeah. Bill. i i i love stuff like that <laughs> yeah well
2: i was i was not popular at uh you know at, at cocktail parties with that um but i a, as i as i began to i was teaching actually here's a here's a good part of the inspiration i was teaching uh, an aarp class in mythology and i was by far the youngest person in, <laughs> in the room i was probably in my late twenties or early thirties. And you know the other people were the age I am now. And as I was explaining mythology to them, they provided the most amazing input to me um, and made me see things about the, the, the content that I'd never thought about. And so that group was a great inspiration. Um, I then took that inspiration to uh, to some of the administration. I was at Temple University at that point in my career and talked to the, the Dean of Arts and Sciences um, who, who gave me a really uh, a good piece of advice that, that inspired me. And he said, you know, I, I know what you want to do and I know where you want to go and it's not going to happen here. Temple is big, you're young, there's a lot of people in line ahead of you. If you are willing to be flexible, if you are willing to move, if you are willing to push yourself, you can, you can achieve what it is you want. Now that was inspiring because at that point I wasn't even sure what it was I wanted, mm-hmm. um, but he saw something there. And, and, and that was very inspiring. Um, later, I was uh, I was inspired by uh, the president of, of a university, um, which will remain nameless at the, at the moment um, because he, he, he inspired me by being the worst role model I could ever imagine. <laughs> and and I, I talk about that in the, in the blog and the book a little bit. And <clears throat> I sat in any number of meetings where I said to myself, I'm glad I'm not being treated the way he's treating someone else, or I thought I'm never going to treat anyone mm-hmm. that way. And I internalized that, and it inspired me as I worked with people going forward. Um, so that as I worked with various kinds of teams and was put in leadership positions, I remembered the things that I didn't want to do as much as the things that I did want to do. And I think great that's point. a great point. That's a mistake that, that people make. And then my last inspiration. Um, undoubtedly the strongest uh, was John Sperling, who was the founder of University of Phoenix, who on the surface was, was a, a crusty old guy and a fighter, um, also brilliant. Um, but he, the one thing he said to me that, that stuck with me all through my, my career at University of Phoenix was, if you do the right thing for the student, everything else will fall into place. Mm. And by God, I can't tell you how many times in, in my career there, that was what guided my decisions and guided my team's decisions as, as we went forward. Um, and that was, a, a, you know, obviously something that stuck with me, but was probably the most inspiring thing.
0: You've been listening to the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University. We really appreciate your support. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please check out www.claremontlincoln.edu for more information about Claremont Lincoln University and our graduate degree programs. Until next time.